0: Be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 27, beginning in verse 30, reading through the end of the chapter. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father, and said to his father, "'Let my father arise and eat of a son's game, that your soul may bless me.' And his father Isaac said to him, "'Who are you?' So he said, "'I am your son, your firstborn, Esau.' Then Jacob trembled exceedingly and said, "'Who?' "'Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed.' When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, "'Indeed, I have made him your master, "'and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. "'With grain and wine I have sustained him. "'What shall I do now for you, my son?' And Esau said to his father, "'Have you only one blessing, my father? "'Bless me, me also, O my father.' And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, "'Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth,' And of the dew of heaven from above, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, his older son, her older son were told to Rebekah so she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you now therefore my son obey my voice arise flee to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him then I will send and bring you from there Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, there is no doubt that words are important. Words communicate thoughts and ideas, change people's minds, instruct us with new knowledge, and inspire us to achieve great things. Most of us can probably remember something that a parent or a grandparent said to us at some point in the past that has stuck with us for the rest of our lives. Their words had a lasting impact on us. But just how much power do our words actually have? Well, according to some, they have a great deal of power. The famous poet Maya Angelou said, Someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. I think they are things. They get on the walls, they get in your wallpaper, they get in your rugs, in your upholstery, and your clothes, and finally into you. I don't know exactly what she meant by that, But it seems that she thought that words contained power that would in some way be scientifically measurable, like electrical power or hydraulic power. Others believe that our spoken words have some sort of mystical power to them. New Age guru Deepak Chopra said, language creates reality. Words have power. Well, yeah, but he's a New Age guru. I mean, this guy talks about quantum healing and other pseudo-scientific nonsense. What does that have to do with us? Well, my point is with these quotes is that these sorts of ideas are active in our culture. People believe them. They embrace them. Even in the church culture of America. As I've been talking about the power of words for the last moment or two, some of you may have had a name pop into your head of a fairly well-known preacher who says, some very similar things. Here is a quote. The power to see change in your life can be found in the words you speak. You have the power to set the destiny for your life by what comes out of your mouth. Joel Osteen. He said some other things about our words that border on, if not stray into outright heresy and even blasphemy. There's a whole theological camp out there known as the Word of Faith Movement, or sometimes referred to as the Name It, Claim It group, where preachers regularly tell their congregation to repeat after them certain phrases or certain words because the saying of those words will somehow cause things to happen. Osteen has even gone on television with Oprah and led a room full of people, many, maybe most of which... Are not believers in the biblical sense, and He's led them in speaking words of power to change their lives. And this goes beyond just the the idea of positive thinking. It's claiming that the words we speak actually have power to accomplish what we say. And you know, when we turn to Scripture, we do see demonstrations of the power of words. The first record of speaking in the history of the world is in the third verse of the Bible. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Well, that's power. There's power in those words. God speaks and light comes into existence. And over the course of six days, God speaks all of creation into order. Light and darkness, sun and stars, heaven and earth, land and sea, plant life and animal life. There's power in the words of God. Later in the New Testament, we see Jesus speaking to calm the storm, to raise the dead. Throughout the scriptures, the prophets speak prophecies that later come to pass. In our text this morning, we see a father speaking blessings over his children that sets the course of their lives, and not just their lives, but the lives of their descendants after them for many generations. Last Lord's Day, we examined the faith of Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob in the event of Isaac blessing Jacob. And this morning, we've read the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. After Jacob has deceived his father swindled, uh, tricked him into giving him the blessing by pretending to be Esau. He exits and immediately his brother Esau enters. There's a great deal of tension in the story as Jacob is trying to pull off his heist impersonating Esau before Esau could return from the hunt and possibly catch him in the act, catch him hairy-handed, so to speak. You know, I was really hoping that the term catching somebody red handed uh, came from this story because, you know, Esau was red all over and later got the nickname Red Edom uh, because of the red lentil stew there in chapter 25. And so I thought, oh, I'm sure that catching somebody red handed must have come from this story. It didn't. Uh, it comes from a court record in Scotland in the 15th century where a murderer was caught with blood on his hands. But I like the idea of Jacob being afraid that Esau might come in and catch him hairy-handed with the goat skins on his hands, trying to impersonate his brother in order to get the blessing. But in the providence of God, that didn't happen. Jacob gets out in the nick of time. But then Esau comes in and he brings his father a meal that he has prepared from the wild game that he took in his hunt. Then now Isaac is confused at this point. He's blind, remember. He can't see. So he's relying on his other senses. And if you'll remember from last week, he was skeptical when Jacob came to him because he heard Jacob's voice. So he questioned him and his reason was fooled. Then he touched him and his sense of touch was fooled. He smelled him. His sense of smell was fooled. Then he tasted the food that Jacob had brought him, and his sense of taste was fooled. The only sense that Isaac had that was telling him the truth was his sense of hearing, and he dismissed it because all of his other senses were fooled. Now, there's a sermon in there somewhere. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So don't let your other senses or what you feel convince you to dismiss what you're hearing from the Word of God. But that's another sermon. It's not the one I'm preaching this morning. Isaac ignored what his ears were telling him. He listened to his other senses, but now he hears the voice of Esau, and he recognizes it. But now he's questioning everything. What, what happened? Who, who just came in? I gave him the blessing. And so, Isaac, we saw, recognized God's hand in all of this. He, he recognized that Jacob had received the blessing just as God had said that he would in spite of Isaac's attempt to give that blessing to Esau. And so he states that Jacob will indeed be blessed. Isaac cannot, in fact, he dares not try and go against what God has done. Isaac submits himself to the will of God at this point. Now, Esau, on the other hand, has a very different reaction to this event. We see in verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. Isaac is upset by this turn of events. His cry is exceedingly great and bitter. Now, bitter is the opposite of sweet, if we think about our taste, right? It's a sharp taste, it's acrid, it's astringent. But when it's used in the scriptures in this way, it's not referring to our sense of taste, it's referring to our emotions, what we're feeling, and it's most often associated with sin. When a person is bitter It means that they're angry, that they're full of resentment and hostility, and they're holding on to it. They're not letting it go. And so we're warned against this in the book of Hebrews. Interestingly enough, in one of the few passages in the New Testament that mentions Esau by name, we're told, "...pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord." Looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected." For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So the root of bitterness leads to sin. The author of Hebrews warns us against this, lest we become like the profane and godless Esau, who sold his birthright for a mouthful of food. And here in our text, we see that Esau was consumed with bitterness, so much so that he gives voice to it. He cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And the last part of that passage there in Hebrews caused me to stop and think for a minute. It says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau sought repentance with tears diligently and couldn't find it. What does that mean? Well, I don't think that it means that Esau wanted to repent and God wouldn't let him. In fact, I don't think that's what that text means at all. Listen to the words of Matthew Henry commenting on that passage. He says, he was rejected of God. He found no place of repentance in God or God. In his father. The blessing was given to another, even to him to whom he sold it for a mess of pottage. Esau, in his great wickedness, had made a bargain, and God, in his righteous judgment, ratified and confirmed it, and would not suffer Isaac to reverse it. So, what Esau sought was not to change his ways, to repent of his own sin, but rather to change his father's mind. He wanted to change the events. He wanted Isaac to repent, to turn back from what he had just done and giving the blessing to Jacob. Now, we can see from the text that Esau is not repenting of his own sin because just a few verses later, we're told, in verse 41, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. He hated his brother. He's plotting to murder him. That doesn't sound like someone who is seeking repentance. He wanted Isaac to repent, to turn back from what he had done, to undo the giving of the blessing to Jacob and give it to him instead. John Gill says that Esau wept In order to move the affections of his father and to prevail upon him to reverse the blessing he had bestowed on Jacob and give it to him. But he could not bring his father to repentance to change his mind and revoke the blessing and give it him with all his crying and tears as the apostle observes in Hebrews 12. The whole point of the passage in Hebrews is to warn us against letting bitterness take root in our souls because it will bear the fruit of sin. And when the judgment of God comes, those who have shunned the grace of God will seek to avoid the consequences of their sin in vain, just as Esau sought the reversal of the blessing in vain. And when we look at our text here in Genesis this morning, we, we notice how Esau sought this blessing. Hebrews said he sought it with diligence. With diligence he sought this blessing. And there can be no doubt that he does, which is itself a sort of reversal from his earlier attitude. Years before, assuming that the commentators are correct in the ages at the time of these two events, Esau was 15 when he sold his birthright, in 77 now when he seeks the blessing. That's 62 years that have gone by. Esau despised the birthright when he was a young man. He traded it for a bowl of stew. But now, later in life, really about midlife for him, he's come to see the value and the blessing, and he wants it. Now, why would that be? What, what changed in Esau? Well, his age no doubt plays a role, as we age, we begin to see the value in things that we didn't value when we were younger. But secondly, we, we've seen previously that Esau had no interest in the responsibilities of the birthright, no patience to wait for the prophet that would come with it. But now he believes the time is near. No need for patience. Isaac thinks that he's about to die. And the blessing carries with it great value. And we saw last week that Isaac blessed Jacob with three things. He blessed him with material possessions, with plenty. He blessed him with power over other nations and over his own siblings. And he blessed him with prominence spiritually. And Esau had his mind set on the things of this world. And many of those things contained in the blessing were things that would appeal and hold value to a mind set on the world. Material possessions and plenty of them, power over others, particularly over his brother, and prominence and having his friends blessed and his enemies cursed. Now Esau might not have known the specifics of uh, the blessing, but he must have known the general outline of what to expect. Now here's the interesting thing to me, the thing that caught my attention as I read this text this past week, Esau is a profane person, Hebrews said. He's ungodly. He is nowhere in the scripture said to have faith of any kind. Least of all, in the God of his father, Isaac. But he firmly believes the blessing has value. He believes that the words his father speaks over his sons have power to bring about what is spoken. In that way, he reminds me of the secular power of positive speaking crowd, so popular in our culture today. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a, a news article uh, about young homebuyers and, and how competitive the the home buying market was, and that many young homebuyers were building manifestation altars uh, in order to speak positively and to cause their Uh, bid their offer on a home they were trying to buy to be accepted. I went looking for that article, and I couldn't find it, but just Googling manifestation altar returned all kinds of results about how and why you should build one of these in your own home. Now, bear in mind, we're talking about secular people, non-Christians. They don't worship God. They don't believe in Him. They believe in science, right? And yet, they also believe in creating sacred spaces. It's their term in order to amplify their energy, in order to have, quote, a conversation with the universe, to speak their desires into reality. They are essentially pantheistic pagans. They believe in some sort of spiritual energy in the universe. The universe itself is their God, and they think that they can activate that energy by their words. Now, if you stop and think about it, it makes a sort of sense. As we said, the words of God were powerful to create and shape reality. Everything that exists was spoken into existence by the power of God. The universe continues because Hebrews tells us that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, think back to Genesis 3. The serpent comes into the garden, and he lies to Adam and Eve. What's the lie that he tells them? You can be like God. And he tells that same lie today. And so it's no surprise that the world thinks that their words have power, the same sort of power that God's words have. Esau seems to have fallen prey, well little irony there, given he was the skillful hunter, but he's fallen prey to this, this lie. He believes Isaac's words have power without having any faith in the God of Isaac. He wanted those words of power spoken over himself, and so he asks Isaac to bless him there in verse 34. But Isaac responds and says in verse 35, but he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Isaac says the blessing is gone. Can't get it back. Can't be reversed. And so Esau responds in verse 36, and Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. Esau's not being entirely honest here about what his brother has done. Yes, Jacob did take the birthright, but Esau sold it to him willingly for a bowl of stew. Esau despised the birthright. Jacob didn't have a gun to his head and force him to do that. And yes, Jacob did deceive Isaac to get the blessing. But Isaac has at this point recognized that that only happened because the providence of God. It was God's will to begin with that Isaac Jacob get that blessing. So Esau's putting a lot of blame on Jacob. And some of that blame is his own. John Calvin, sometimes I enjoy his commentary because he writes with a certain flair. And on this verse, he commented and said, Having sold his birthright, he had darted like a famished dog upon the meat and the pottage. And now, as if he had done no wrong, he vents all his anger on his brother. Like a famished dog. Not a pretty picture. Esau had despised the birthright. And now he's not owning up to his own sin. He's not repentant. He just wants the blessing because he believes in the power of his father's words. So at the end of verse 36, he asks a second time, and he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Now, this is the second time he asks for a blessing. He's realized his father won't undo the blessing that he has given to Jacob, but he thinks, well, maybe at least he he can give me a blessing in addition to the one that he gave to Jacob. But Isaac responds to this question by telling Esau exactly what he had done when he blessed Jacob. In verse 37, Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? Now this must have come as a real blow to Esau. Esau has always been the wild man, living carefree, indulging his whims, his desire for sport and the hunt. And now he finds that his father has made his younger brother the one who cared about hard work and responsibility. He's made Jacob Esau's master. Esau hated that. He had given Jacob material blessings and power and prestige. And so Isaac asked, What's left for me to do for you, my son? There's not much I can give you. I gave everything to your brother. But again, with tears, Esau pleads with Isaac in verse 38. Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This is the third time he's asked for the blessing. He is indeed seeking it diligently, as Hebrews said. And that was what arrested my attention. He, He doesn't have any faith in God but he believes in the power of his father's words. So he pleads with his father. Isaac blessed Jacob with a blessing that came from God. Esau seems to think that Isaac can just hand out these blessings in his own power. And so he's pleading with Isaac for one. And so Isaac does speak prophetically over Esau. And remember that Hebrews says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So by faith, Isaac speaks over his sons prophetically. So God speaks through Isaac as he speaks these words over Esau, even though Esau has no faith in God. But this prophecy that he speaks over Esau isn't really very comforting. Verse 39 Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heavens, of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, the first part sounds very similar to the blessing that was given to Jacob, but there is a difference. When he blessed Jacob, Isaac had said, therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. For Esau, he doesn't say, may God give you, just instead he says, behold, your dwelling shall be. And he doesn't say anything about plenty of grain and wine. It seems as if Esau won't starve. He'll have some material prosperity, but not as much as Jacob. His is not a blessing from God the way Jacob's is. It's not a blessing of abundance and plenty. It's a promise of sufficiency. And it's closely followed by a prophecy that he will live by the sword. That is, the lives of him and his descendants after him will not be peaceful. They will have to fight to survive. Esau himself won't literally serve Jacob, but his descendants, the Edomites, will be conquered by King David, Jacob's descendant, and will serve Israel until the reign of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat in 2 Kings chapter 8, when they then rebel and make a king for themselves. So the blessing that Esau receives assures him that he won't starve, but he will serve It's a promise of a hard life for him and his descendants, a fighting to survive subjugation to Jacob's descendants until many generations later they will finally gain their freedom. Esau's reaction to this whole turn of events is to hate his brother and to plot to murder him. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, apparently, he didn't just say this in his heart, but he vocalized it at some point because a loyal servant or someone must have overheard this and a report came to Rebekah concerning Esau's intentions. And so she calls Jacob, tells him what Esau is planning and she instructs him to flee to her brother Laban for safety, but not without his father's consent So she speaks to her husband and she tells him she doesn't want Jacob to marry a wife from among the Canaanites like Esau has done. And this is no doubt true. Esau's wives, we learned at the end of chapter 26, were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So while she doesn't reveal all she knows about Esau's plans, she does at least tell the truth when she's talking to Isaac this time and her desire for Jacob to find a wife Elsewhere and not from among the Canaanites. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Rebekah is willing to send her son away, the son that she loves, to send him away in order to avoid Esau's anger rather than try and negotiate the blessing with Esau to assuage his anger and, and bring peace so that Jacob can stay there. Calvin calls this an evidence of extraordinary faith that Rebecca does not come to any agreement but persuades her son to become a voluntary exile and chooses to be deprived of his presence rather than that he should give up the blessing he had received. But sin always has consequences. And the consequences of Rebecca's sin in deceiving her husband is that she is forced to send away the son she loves. And by all accounts, she never sees him again. She had said in verse 44, He's to go to her brother Laban and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. But it's more than a few days, more than a year. It's 20 years that Jacob stays with Laban. 20 years. He spends 14 years working for his uncle in order uh, to earn his wives. And then he stays another six years after that, increasing his wealth, having his sons. Apparently, Rebecca never sent for him. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but it appears that she didn't. And apparently, she dies before he returns. Rebecca is never mentioned again in the history until the very end of Genesis when Jacob requests that his sons bury him in the cave that Abraham had purchased in which Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah were buried. So Rebekah gave up her most beloved son for the sake of the blessing that she knew to be God's will. And Calvin calls that an extraordinary faith. But Esau, on the other hand, is still determined to overthrow the will of God. He intends to murder his brother. By doing so, the birthright would revert to him, and the blessing of Jacob would be undone. Of course, God does not allow this to happen, but that is Esau's intention. And so it seems clear at this point that whatever blessing Esau sought, it wasn't from God. He looked to the power of his dad's words, He seemed to think that Isaac had some power intrinsic to himself to speak and cause things to happen. The ungodly desire blessing, and they seek it earnestly, diligently, but not from God. Esau didn't seek God with repentance. He plotted murder instead. He didn't seek a blessing by means of prayer and humility before God, but by the word of his father, apart from faith. It should be of no surprise to us when unbelievers seek the blessings of the creation apart from the creator. But Esau, Esau should know better. Esau is like those that we are warned about in Hebrews 6, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. We saw Wednesday night in our study of Hebrews that uh, the, the example that's given here for this passage is that generation of Israelites who, who came out of Egypt in the Exodus and yet did not have faith. They saw all the wonderful things God did. They, they partook of the grace of God in their lives. They were part of the covenant community and yet they were unregenerate. They rejected God's grace. they proved themselves to be reprobate just as Esau is. Esau grew up in the same home as Jacob was raised by Isaac and Rebekah, am sure he was raised to worship the Lord, the same as Jacob, his life bore much different fruit. The writer of Hebrews goes on to offer an analogy to make his point, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The same rain falls on the earth, and if it brings forth good fruit, it's blessed. If it brings forth thorns, it's cursed. The same benefits were there for both Jacob and Esau in the household of Isaac. They grew up with Abraham as their grandfather. He lived until they were 15. Abraham. They heard the stories from their granddad, I'm sure, of God's call on his life. The amazing acts of blessing that God had worked in Abraham's life. You know, they heard the story of God commanding their grandfather to take their dad up on the mountain and sacrifice him, and God stopping him at the last minute and providing a ram as a substitute. They both heard the story of Abraham's servant finding Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. You know, they heard the story of how their parents met. They both were were led to worship God by Abraham and Isaac. Jacob grew up to become a mature, responsible man, interested in the things of God. He's not without sin. He's not perfect. But he's mature and spiritually minded. But Esau became a profane, ungodly man, given to sport and recreation. He despised the spiritual things of God, and he looked for blessing only in material possessions. The difference wasn't because Jacob was somehow better than Esau, but because Jacob was elect and Esau was reprobate. Just as we saw in our reading this morning from the book of Romans Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, not of Isaac, trying, willing to give the blessing to a son, nor of him that runneth, Esau, seeking that blessing diligently, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not of man, it's of God. Scripture warns us in Hebrews and with the example of Esau, it warns us to carefully make sure that we are looking for blessing from God, seeking the things that are above, the city made without hands that Abraham sought, rather than focusing on worldly possessions and looking for blessing in the creation apart from the Creator. Everyone wants blessing in their lives. Even non-Christians will talk about blessing about being blessed. They'll speak of their spouse or their kids or their job or something in their life that's a blessing to them. They never mention who is doing the blessing. They desire blessing and they seek it diligently, but not from God. Esau looked for blessing from Isaac. He sought blessing in the words of man rather than in the words of God. And when the words didn't get spoken the way he wanted, He determined to undo what was spoken by means of murder. Esau wept over the loss of the blessing, but not over his own sin. He gives vent to his rage, hates his brother, plots to murder him. Esau's sorrow wasn't because of his sin. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul rejoices that his previous letter, in which he had gotten pretty stern with them, produced sorrow but he rejoices because the sorrow produced repentance. He says, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Esau's sorrow was the sorrow of the world. It led to hatred, the plotting of murder in his heart. And we know from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that 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 means Esau was guilty of the sin of murder. So his sorrow was a worldly sorrow that produced death. So we must heed the warning and his example and be careful that when we have sorrow over our sin, it's actual repentance for the sin and not just sorrow over the temporal consequences. Our sin separates us from our creator. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, therefore morally perfect and upright. But his sin marred that image. We're all born in the likeness of our father, Adam, born in rebellion against our creator in sin. We resent our creator with bitterness. We desire to supplant him, to take his place. You can be like God. Hebrews warns us that that root of bitterness, if we don't dig it up, put it to death in our lives, that it will bear the fruit of sin leading to death. It's the same warning that God gave Adam in the garden. Yet Adam believed the lie of the serpent, that he could be like God. And we're all born believing that lie. The name Jacob, or supplanter, could rightly be given to all of us. We're creatures made out of the dirt. We only live because the Almighty God breathed life into us, and yet we defy Him by our sin, violate His law, and we seek our own good apart from Him, just as Esau did. That sin, that treason against our Creator is deserving of death. So God Himself, in the person of Christ, took on human flesh so that he could live in perfect obedience to the law of God, in our place, and then die as a substitute, taking our place under the wrath of God. Our sins were laid on him, Isaiah says. He suffered the wrath of God's judgment against our sin. That should be the cause of our sorrow, that we have offended our God, that our sins have added to the suffering of the Savior. If we sorrow over that over our sin, over our offense against the living God, and we turn from our sin to him in repentance, then he forgives us. and The righteousness of Christ is applied to us as a covering. But Esau sorrowed over the loss of the blessing. He didn't sorrow over his sin. He plotted to sin more. So let us, as Hebrews says, look closely examine ourselves so that we do not allow a root of bitterness to take hold, lest we be like Esau, weeping over the consequences of our sin, trying desperately to change our estate in life, but without ever turning in repentance to the one who can truly bless us with everlasting blessing. It's just an outward show of sorrow, but without true repentance of the heart. I'll close with these words from the book of Joel. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Let's pray.